This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 408, a conversation with Ron Friends. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 408. It's our conversation with Ron Friends, or actually it's our second conversation with Ron Friends as we're able to have him back on the show. He was on the show, I believe, last August uh, 2015, so we're able to convince him to do another one because he wasn't tired of us the first time. I want to thank some of the people who have submitted questions to ask Ron. Um, We are... Not necessarily just questions, but also just comments. So I want to thank those that posted um, their comments on the Marvel Masterworks forum, including Strider Tag, Faust33, Mr. Rousername, uh, and a Rock Walker. Uh, I want to thank you guys for submitting your questions and comments, and we, we're trying to Im- integrate them as much as possible into the interview. Uh, we'll get to the interview in just a moment. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, and subscribe to us on iTunes as well. Without further ado, I present our second conversation with the acclaimed illustrator, Ron Friends. Ron, welcome back to Comic Shenanigans. How are you doing today? Adam, I'm doing great, and it's uh, always a pleasure to uh, partake in more shenanigans. Absolutely. It's uh, been almost 100 episodes since we've actually had you on. It's, it's actually been quite a while. Well, uh, you should be exhausted then. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I've, uh, I think this is episode 406, so uh, I do two, two a week. I don't, know where, I don't know where I find the time. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, enough about me. Let's, let's talk about you. So uh, first up, um, before we actually get into some listener questions and covering some of the, the material we didn't have a chance to talk about a year ago, uh, let's talk about what you're working on these days. So where have we, first of all, in the past year, where have we been able to find your work and what is new? Uh, wow, last year. I, I have such a short-term memory. Um, currently, what I'm working on is a, uh, a book called The Blue Baron for a publisher called Sit Comics, uh, run by a gentleman named Darren Henry out of California. Uh, he is uh, he hasn't done his national launch yet. The books are available through Comixology and through a couple of different uh, websites and through mail order. Uh, the ones that have been published hard copy, but he's waiting until he has, you know, uh, enough uh, of a backlog of issues before he does his national rollout, his international rollout, which makes a lot of sense. Um, the but he has uh, like five or six superhero titles and and five or six humor titles, and uh, he he's putting his own money into it he was selling off his comics collection uh the gentleman currently works in uh, in television he's working for the disney channel uh doing casey undercover for as a writer producer okay uh, and he's he's got a, a fairly extensive cv in uh writing sitcoms which is where sitcomics comes from they're they're basically uh traditional comics uh the superhero comics especially he was a child of the 70s so he he's going for a 70s vibe uh, with the traditional sit uh, with traditional superheroics with a sitcom twist uh, and it, it, it's really in my wheelhouse it's the the kind of stuff I really enjoy you know he kind of wants blue Baron to, to be a, a 1970s Salbasema comic in fact he approached Salbasema initially uh, and Sal's not doing any penciling anymore. Uh, he doesn't really enjoy working with the blank page as much, and, and uh, we enjoyed working together on Spider Girl. So he recommended me to Darren. He said, "You get Ron Friends to pencil it. I'll be happy to ink it." 
and this gentleman was aware of our work together on Spider Girl, so he was uh, he hired me and. Sal is inking it, and Glenn Whitmore is coloring it, a gentleman I worked with on the Superman books back in the day. And it's a nice package. The first issue's out has been published as a uh, collector's edition. When he does his national rollout, it will be reprinted with a different cover in a non-collector's edition type of thing. But it's been a lot of fun. It's, uh, you know, there's so much to do out there that's not Marvel and DC. I mean, I know a lot of people... Uh, whether or not they care, probably have this impression that, uh, you know, I'm living under a bridge somewhere because <laughs> they're not seeing my name on Marvel and DC books. But, you know, we just did the uh, Spider-Girl stuff in Spider Island. We I, I just did a Flash fill-in that hasn't, it was inventory, so it hasn't run yet. But, uh, you know, over the last few years, I've uh, kept my hand in it, Marvel and DC, doing fill-ins and annuals and such, but uh, pursuing this... Uh, this Blue Baron project has been a lot of fun. I, I, I'm actually designing characters constantly for this gentleman, uh, for his various superhero titles, and uh, you know, so it's been very, a very creative time, a very uh, fun time, and I'm also doing commissions and uh, the occasional job for Marvel and DC. I have a, a ten-page backup for the Amazing Spider-Man on my board right now. That's going to be part of this uh, Dead No More event that they're doing in the fall so very exciting now i want to ask a question about blue baron so who is the blue baron like what's that character like uh the premise is the blue baron is a character that has been around for 200 some years okay um he came out of the revolutionary war uh some people think he's immortal uh other people think it might just be handed down from father to son but the premise of the book is that there's this long-established superhero who is a bit on the arrogant side. He's very good at what he does. And we have a a young 13-year-old boy named Ernie, who is uh, your typical 13-year-old kid who's got a bully after him and his own little group of friends. And uh, there is an accident that they switch bodies. So it's traditional superheroics, with a Freaky Friday twist to it. <laughs> uh, so now we're, we're going to see if a 13-year-old can survive as a superhero and if a superhero can survive as a 13-year-old boy. Uh, so it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. It, 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 uh, Darren is very creative, has a very funny voice, which I enjoy. The first issue came together really, really well. And... Uh, you know, I've been I've been having a lot of fun with it, and it's uh, again, you know, what he wants is is a is a, a '70s solid Marvel vibe, which I loved the '60s and '70s at Marvel. So I'm very comfortable. It's my wheelhouse, you could say, and uh, you know, a lot of uh, motion lines and what we used to call whap marks and impact lines, and it's <laughs> just if you liked. Sal Buscema's work on Rom and Nova and the Hulk and things like that in the seventies, then you should you should love Blue Baron. How did you uh, go about designing the Blue Baron's costume? Was that like, was the design for Blue Baron already kind of set before you were approached, or is it something you no, came no. up with? No, actually, I got to design everything from the ground up, so I have a real investment, creative investment in it. Um, the Darren uh, sent me a. It, it, what it looked like was almost like a costume design for like a play or something. It was a drawing of a baron, you know, uh, uh, a revolutionary era baron. 
and uh, said, you know, I want I want you to make a superhero costume out of this. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I, I did my best, and uh, I liked what we came up with. It, it was, his costume is supposed to be corny. It's you know, it's supposed to be one that like the the other thirteen year olds think he's the dorky superhero. You know, it's kind of like the way some kids feel about Superman. You know, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, but but it, there's a world of superheroes. There's a, a a team of superheroes called the Heroes Union. And uh, there's there are there's a speedster uh, female speedster named Startup and a lot of other you know superhero characters that I've gotten to design and uh, and, and it's a wonderfully creative period. I, it, it's probably the most creative I've been since uh, uh, MC2, you know, because I was in on the ground floor with Tom DeFalco on MC2 and did a lot of the design work for for the A next team and for J2 and. And, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, it was, you know, a wonderfully creative time. And uh, and it is it is that with this. Uh, Darren will send me this disparate reference of, you know, inspiration. You know, like a, maybe a top like this and pants something like this. And if you could work <laughs> these goggles in and if you kind of, you know, if you could work this hoodie in, you know, that kind of thing for any given character. And he sends all of this reference and, and I sit there and I look at it I play with it and uh, we try to see if we can get it into a character that doesn't look piecemeal that ends up looking kind of uh, cool and 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 uh, current you know I mean it's got that 70s classic vibe but the, the characters themselves are very much of the new millennium and uh, you know there's some really nice modern takes on traditional superheroes so uh i'm eager for people to see it i'm eager for the launch i'm eager to see uh we've gotten some really nice reviews from the uh uh, from the uh, uh, digital postings and stuff uh from from the digital downloads the people that have reviewed it have been very kind and very enthusiastic about it so i'm hoping that the same is true uh with the national launch and that we get some uh you know get some people on board to have some fun with us now there, there is a there's a picture or there, I guess a shot from from the um, from the book uh, that's on the website, and I want to ask a question about it. I I don't know who the character is that uh, that um, Blue Baron's fighting at this point, but it almost has like a, a Cyclops visor and like a Kirby's Kirby-ish gun. I was just curious, is that kind of going with that '70s vibe? Because this gun that he's holding looks very much like a Kirby design for a gun. I don't know if you know oh. the one I'm talking about. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm not quite sure which shot you're talking about, or if I if, if it's one that I even. I hope it's, it's you. <laughs> I, it, it might be me. Sal Basem has been doing some of the covers himself. It's not a cover though. It looks like it's an it's a shot from the interior. It's uh, Blue Baron kind of jumping through, out of something, uh, and he's got someone in his arms that he, I don't know if he was attacking him or not. And the guy's holding a giant Kirbyish gun. Oh, I know. Okay, I know who you're talking about now. That's from the first issue. Okay. Uh, the giant Kirby-ish gun is uh, possibly one of the factors that that, that uh, affects the body swap. Okay. The, the character that he's uh, uh, battling is is called the Liquidator, and he has these two guns that uh, shoot this special type of acid that liquefies everything. Uh, but that that weapon is something that just came out of a weapons cache. And is fired at the same moment that they fall into another device. And there's an alien life form involved, and, and we don't really know all the factors that have been involved in the body swap. That's something they're going to have to figure out if they ever hope to reverse it. 
but uh, but yes, now I, fi- I finally understand what shot you're talking about. It is <laughs> it's a it's a half splash, a three quarter splash from the first issue. Yes. Okay, and then so the so I mean, so me thinking it's a Kirbyish gun is that kind of an accurate assessment of? Kind oh, of the- that's very that's a very accurate assessment. I, I'm never going to let go of, of everything I've learned from Mr. Kirby over the years, and uh, you know, you talk about an outlandish super weapon, then you you think Kirby. So absolutely, there you go. But uh, yeah, there's a there's a website. Uh, there's a Facebook page for Sid Comics. It's S I T C O M I C S one word, and you can check out the Facebook page. He runs posts of uh, of pages of the books that are in progress and and does uh, wonderful fun little teases of things that are coming and shows cover artwork and things like that. So uh, if anybody's interested, please jump on board. Uh, uh, you know, join the, the the join the ride and weigh in on what we're doing and what I really so I really I really thought you were going to say join the revolution. <laughs> <laughs> well, see now that would that would kind of be a cool tagline. Now, exactly. There you go for a revolutionary war character. I I love it. I love it. We will credit you. <laughs> uh, so I have some listener questions before I get into my own uh, personal story of questions for you. Uh, the first one actually, ironically, isn't a question, more of a comment. Um, for some, somehow, this guy must have been sitting under, living under a rock, so he's never actually had a chance to read a story penciled by you. But he absolutely loved one of the covers you did for the Hulk 100 Covers Project. Uh, there's a, a, a cover you did of uh, the Hulk feeding uh, a deer. Yes. And he said he just he absolutely loved it, and it was, uh, he, he thought it was such a simple yet powerful drawing, and he just wanted you to know. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, I, I I give the guy a lot of credit if he reads comics to have avoided me all these years. <laughs> I'm going to say I'm going to I'm going to assume it wasn't deliberate, but uh, if it was, okay, uh, yeah, that was fun. I, I did two different covers for uh, for that one, and that was one that I miss. I might be the only one, Adam, but I miss the Hulk that liked baked beans and defended Bambi's mother and all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I miss the, the childlike Hulk. And I believe uh, that there was that he was like feeding a little fawn. And, and, uh, and I think I wrote like, all we are saying dot, 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 you know, that's right. Yes. And, uh, and the other one I did was uh, kind of a, uh, a profile of the Hulk with like banner trapped inside him in shadow and uh, within each of us uh, from the quote within each of us oft times there dwells a mighty raging fury that was uh, the quote that launched the pilot for the Hulk television series but uh, th- those you know that, that that's the real Hulk to me that's the primal Hulk I'm not as big a fan of the uh, the more intelligent Hulks or the more savage Hulks I, I liked the childlike Hulk that that was looking for his place in the world and was frustrated by the people that he came across who didn't give him the opportunity. You know, the one that was a member of the Defenders, the one that, uh, you know, uh, traveled the world. And uh, I miss that stuff. I, I, uh, I, I buy up all the, uh, <laughs> the uh, Marvel, uh, what were they, the Essentials. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and I relive them. Through those, uh, and uh, they're actually reprinting. Yeah. They're slowly reprinting all of that original Hulk material in color now. Well, yeah, with 
through the, uh, the yeah. There's a, actually one of our Thor's our Thor runs kind of helped launch that with it, the Epic Line or something. That's, that, that's right, yeah. And actually, I think some yeah. of your Spider-Man stuff is in uh, is has been in an Epic collection so far as well. Yeah. Well, that's how you know you're old. <laughs> that your stuff has become, uh, been referred to as Epics. We're 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 Coke, we're Coke classic. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Uh, a question from a, um, a poster named Faust33. Um, now, we've kind of co- covered part of this, but it's always an interesting question. Uh, who have been the biggest influences on your art style over the years? Uh, oh, over the years, I don't know if it really has changed much. So the obvious ones are Jack Kirby, John Romita, uh, John and Sal Buscema. Uh, you know, work, being able to work with Sal has been a, a, an incredible pleasure and one of the most terrific things about my career uh, having met and uh, worked with John Romita on a couple of projects has been a real thrill um, but I'm also you know I, I, I also look around and I'm influenced by like Mike Mignola uh, Alex Toth um, uh, Al Williamson was a big influence uh, and you know anybody all these guys I, I, I mean I grew up on Superman comic books by Kurt Swan and Al Plastino and Aquaman by Nick Cardi and uh, <laughs> these these guys are all people. It's all in the program, you know. These these are the guys I grew up on. These are the guys that made me want to grow up and do this stuff. Um, and I'm I've been incredibly lucky and fortunate to to uh, accomplish that. You know, it was I was very single minded. <laughs> now I have a little bit of an odd tangent question. Um, kind of springboarding off of that, you, you had mentioned in our first conversation that uh, sometimes you'll use a swipe very deliberately because you're trying to evoke a certain image or a certain artist. Are there any particular? Not this is going to sound more negative than I mean it to. Are there any swipes that you have never had a chance to integrate into your art that you would love to, or something you wanted to pay homage to at some point but just haven't been able to work it into a story for whatever reason? Uh. Not specifically. I, I you know, it, it really is very um, story specific. You know, uh, when, I, when if I, if I read a plot and a certain scene sparks a memory, I, I might be more likely to you know look up that reference and see if it's appropriate. You know, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, there are there are some iconic images for me that uh, I've. You know that I've yet to rip off. Um, <laughs> there are like some Spider-Man covers that are just very iconic to me, and I don't know the numbers, but there was that two-part Mysterio story where Mysterio blasted him and then took him to an amusement park and made him think he was six inches tall. Yeah, uh, using special effects, and that cover with the two hands coming up as Spider-Man is crouched, and you're seeing Spider-Man from the back with the two hands looming over him with the zip-a-tone background. That cover just every time I see it it just makes me go damn I would love to be able to pull something off like that um, you know so, so there are like some real iconic images like that that uh, you know never got around to, we never got around to a spider girl story where it might have been appropriate to rip that off you know that kind of thing um, but uh, so no I don't really I, I don't really think about it you know beforehand I don't have a a, a mental file of images I'd like to use at some point it, it, it is more about uh, if a, a particular plot conjures 
an image for me if it reminds me of something or or uh, inspires me in that direction where you know it's like oh man that's kind of like that shot that Kirby did it I mean that happened a lot in my run with Thor with Tom DeFalco because we were deliberately trying to kind of get back to that vibe and uh, so there were things that were happening in the stories that was like oh that'd be fun to throw that in there and, and kind of you know but but yeah it, it's it's the height of arrogance it would be the height of arrogance for me and and frankly it's kind of the height of arrogance for anybody to think that people that you're that, that i'm trying to fool somebody with with the internet now and with things being reprinted the way they are and all this kind of stuff it's it's not nobody's trying to fool you i mean nobody's trying to trick you nobody's trying to claim the work for themselves it, 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 I, I think it should be, you know, it's kind of like, uh, a band doing its greatest hits, you know, it's kind of like, uh, uh, you guys remember this? Wasn't that cool? You know, that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so I guess in a way I'm trying to benefit from that sense of nostalgia, but I, I'm not trying to do it in such a way where it's like, uh, you know, you stole that from Kirby. No, I didn't, you know, that I, I would never deny that I, what's interesting to me is there's like websites where they do uh, swipes you know they like to catch people in swipes and one they, they sometimes they'll do these things where it's just a similar sequence and it's like that's not a swipe it's just a similar sequence but then there was one cover that I did that they put it up as a swipe it was uh, uh, from a Salpasema shot from an issue of the Defenders and if you looked at the cover it said Ron Friends and Joe Sinnott after Sal Buscema. <laughs> I wasn't trying to fool anybody, man. You know, so I, I don't even know what people count as swipes anymore. I, I think it's one of those uh, one of those terms that there's just not a real firm definition for it uh, because, uh, you know, there was like a, a John Buscema sequence that was sort of kind of similar of Thor fighting uh, a character called Durok, the Demolisher, and uh, a Sal Buscema sequence where Thor was fighting the Hulk. And I know Sal wasn't looking at the John reference, but it had this similar sequence where somebody punched the ground and knocked Thor over, and it was handled from different camera angles and everything, but they considered that a swipe. Huh. It's like, okay, okay, you know. Uh, and that's the one thing about the internet. Everybody's got a platform. So, well, that's why I have a show. So, <laughs> well, but see, you—that's different because you deserve to have a show. Absolutely. Adam. Well, for me, it's just it's the uh, the chance to talk to people like you. To be honest, yeah. is that's that's the most exciting part of being able to have this little tiny little platform of my own is being able to talk to these creators who have created some of my favorite stories and being able to talk about them is immensely gratifying. It, uh, literally, it could no one could ever li- download this and I wouldn't care because it, this is for me. <laughs> well, that's very flattering, and I'm you know it's it's always a pleasure talking to you. So. So I've, this is um, I'm going to piggyback on something you just said. So we've talked about in the past. Uh, both today and last year, about that sometimes you'll you'll knowingly kind of ape a certain not not ape a certain style, but you're going for a certain sensibility. So when you did Thor, you were trying to be you do your best Kirby because Kirby does the best Thor in your estimation. So you're trying to kind of capture that that kind of feeling, that kind of magic. Are there any characters that you would that or artists that had an impact on a certain character that you would kind of 
take that approach with now in terms of trying to emulate a certain typical style that you think best suits a character? Because obviously with your, your Spider-Man, you did a lot of uh, um, uh, Ditko, and on, on your uh, Thor, you did a lot of Kirby. Is there any other character slash artist that you would find yourself drawing heavily from? Sure. I, you name a character, and, and maybe it'll spark. I mean, like if I were going to do the vision, I would have the original John Buscema reference in front of me. Uh, so sometimes it, it's as simple as that. It's the first person who did the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when we were working on the original uh, handbook of the Marvel Universe. I was I was given the Cobra, and I sought out the original Don Heck first appearance of the Cobra. But the issue was that his costume had evolved uh, through Kirby doing the costume. He had changed the original intent of the costume. So I called the editor and I said, do you want me to do the Cobra the way he really looks in his first appearance? Or do you want me to do the way he looks now in his latest appearance? Because sometimes characters go through almost like a game of telephone (laughs) where, you know, where like a a black leather outfit on Storm can end up being a white outfit just because somebody got lazy and didn't put the reflection on it. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, The Black Panther often is shown like the Blue Panther, you know, things like that. The Beast, his fur was originally black. In the original Beast series that ran in Amazing Adventures, when he went from gray, it was too black. But then... They stopped putting the black on, and even in story, he became blue. Uh, so there's there's really is like this game of telephone that goes on when different creators handle different characters. So I uh, that, the thing with Thor and the thing with Spider-Man is you go back to the original material. You, you, you go back to try to capture or recapture what was unique about that character when it was created. What was different from any other character? So you don't want to, you know, don't want them standing like every other character. You, you go back to that source material and see where you can pull inspiration from what made that character different and unique. And uh, yeah, I would basically do that with any character. The vision, it would be John Buscema's original treatment from the Avengers. Name a character. Well, actually, I had a question about an existing character that you did work on. So, your Superman, who did you find that it was most closely modeled after? Um, interestingly enough, I, when I was on Superman, I, I my first couple of annuals, the first one, I, it was a very John Buscema kind of take because I always wanted to see John. It was my kind of my standard style because I always wanted to, to kind of invoke like a Buscema Superman. But the second annual I did was very much a pastiche of all the Kirby concepts from Jimmy Olsen. And so I kind of did a Kirby take on him. When I was actually on the book for a couple of years, I really liked what uh, John Bogdanov was doing, where he was actually channeling the original, again, the original Joe Schuster. And he was modernizing it, but but he was drawing the character that Joe Schuster created in his own style. And that really, really appealed to me. Unfortunately, I, you know, there was, I had a, a couple of anchors that didn't know what to do because Schuster Superman, when he smiled, he just had the, he had very smiling eyes. Uh, you know, they would, they would kind of close kind of like Mary Jane Watson's do, you know, when, when somebody smiles with their eyes <laughs> and their eyes become a part of that smile. And I would, I would do that on the Superman and, Inkers didn't know what the devil to do with it, you know. But but it so even that, you know, 
Schuster, I mean, Superman had a really specific look. He had, you know, smile lines on his cheeks when he smiled. He, he had kind of a blockier head, and he was built a little thicker, um, you know, not, not like Wayne Boring thick, but just like through the shoulders and through the neck and all this. So, uh, you know, I was a, a lot of my run of Superman was inspired by, by Joe Schuster. So I'm at least I'm consistent. <laughs> so, well, so there's that. So you said you just did an inventory story for the Flash. So what was your inspiration for Flash? Uh, boy, that's a good question because you know I, when I think the Flash, I mean it, it's no longer all that appropriate. But my first image of the Flash is Carmen Infantino and Irv Novik, two of the guys that did him in the '60s and '70s. Um, so for me, it was when I just did recently did the Flash. It was just I, I was. I can't say I wasn't a little influenced by the, the, the TV series because I enjoy the TV series. Uh, so in some of the attitudes, I was trying to capture what the actor on the TV series does when, when the Flash comes to a stop. You know, uh, I was trying to capture that a little bit, some of the body English and everything. But um, his costume has evolved so much with all the extra lightning bolts on it and everything that I, I can't really say that I... Uh, you know, there were a couple of, uh, of specific bits that he did that, you know, now they they do it very differently now. They don't use the multiple images as much. They they do the the lightning effect, you know, mm-hmm. that you can follow his trail with the lightning flash uh, rather than the multiple images. So I, I didn't revert, you know, to a 1960s flash on that because that's not the, the language, the visual language that they're using right now. So... I, maybe I'm not as consistent as I thought I was, but uh, the the Flash job was fun. I, I had done a, an annual, uh, done some pages of an annual. I did layouts on an annual one year, then the next year I actually penciled part of the annual because it was divided into uh, a, a present day sequence and a future sequence. And I did the present day sequence, and and in that job I was kind of trying to give DC editors what I thought they wanted. That's always a mistake with this fill in. For one thing, Tom DeFalco wrote this villain I just did, so it was a little like coming home again because I'm very comfortable working within the confines of a Tom DeFalco story. I know what Tom's expecting, um, so I really just let go of all of that and just did the best job I could do as myself. You know, I didn't try to overthink it or or anticipate an editor's desire. I just drew it for all I was worth. And it ended up being a, a very, very fun story. It's you know a one-off, uh, single-issue story that will hopefully run at some point when they uh, when they need to slot it. So when somebody needs a little extra time or uh, between epics or something like that, and uh, I'll look forward to seeing it. How did you approach the uh, the visual choreography of a character like that? Because Obviously, he's, he's a character that's all about speed, it's all about movement. Not that you haven't dealt with characters who are highly dependent on speed as well, but it's kind of a different physical feeling than a character like Spider-Man, who obviously has speed, but is, it's not his main arsenal. So how did you approach the choreography? Uh, basically, just with as dynamic a running position as possible. Um, you know, you... you the one thing that is still true of the Flash that, that I always enjoyed about the character, uh, and, you know, I, I, they kind of have overworked the plumbing to a certain degree on the suit. But what I always loved about the Flash is that he is the perfect example of a superhero figure where you can just 
really glorify the human figure, you know. Um, and I try to get, you know, you just try to get it in there with the body English as best you can that he's really running, you know. I mean, this one opened with a nice splash page of just him running right at you. And, uh, you know, you you kind of want to get the, that sprinter look in there with the, with the hands as a wedge, you know, flying up at you and you do the extreme angles and, and you have the, the kind of the foot coming out at you and all this and, and you uh, cross your fingers and, and hope it conveys um, what you're trying to convey as best as possible. So like I said, we don't really do the multiple images as much as, uh, as I was looking at the stuff that they're doing these days. You know, back in the day, it was all about the multiple ghost images and stuff and, and uh, they're not, not really doing that much anymore. Why do you think that is? Because I, mean, I think that's true not only of a character like Flash, but even Spider-Man, used, they used to do a lot more of that to kind of show the acrobatics and everything, and they've kind of, it feels like they've come away from that generally. Why do you think that might be? I, the only thing I can think of is that there has been this real need for comics to, to, to be the movies. I, I always thought that... Here, here's how... Here's how uh, fallible I am with all my yeah you know, with 30 years in the industry. Here's how fallible I am. When I saw them do the Human Torch in CGI, okay, and it looked cool. It looked like a guy on fire. I was like, okay, does that to me that almost suggested that guys like Alex Ross and. Uh, uh, Greg Land and and uh, I'm trying to think of some other guys that are more photorealistic. I, I kind of thought, boy, this is really gonna this is gonna ruin it for them. <laughs> now they're not gonna get any work anymore because now we can see it. You know, now we can see it like photographically live. We can see this. So I all I actually thought that comics would return to the Jack Kirby model of. This is what a flaming man looks like in graphic storytelling. You understand what I'm saying? Absolutely. I, I kind of thought, you know, we'd go back to these wonderful graphic images that aren't photorealistic. And, and I was so wrong because now they have these these incredible illustrators that are like doing what look like these fully painted books. I don't know exactly how they're being, how they're using the computer as a tool or how exactly they're accomplishing this, but you have your Hassan Ribics, and, and if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, and if I'm not, I'm sorry, but you have these gentlemen who are doing these incredibly fully illustrated comics that are so photorealistic that, that, that that's... It's not my particular taste. It's beautifully illustration. Don't get me wrong. I, I the guy could draw rings around me. I acknowledge that easily. But what I always enjoyed about comics is not photorealism. I, I enjoyed the, the 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 you know dynamic graphic representation of the human figure in motion. You know, um, I, I used to get into these discussions with. Um, with editors on Spider Girl because the colorist would try to do like a photo sky and and do all this photo modeling on the stuff and put these white highlights where none were called for in the pencils and do all this kind of stuff to try to make a Ron Friends and Sal Buscema drawing look like a photo. And I would always talk to the to the editors and I, I said we're not we don't think people really look like this. 
you know, we're not trying to draw this photorealistically. This is a graphic representation of life. So on a night scene, it's okay to do it all in blues, you know? You suggest night. You, you put some heavy shadows and you do it all in blues, and the eye tells the brain that that's a night scene, you know, that kind of thing, and it's graphic. Um, and that's kind of all the, the way I've enjoyed comics the most, and that's the kind of comics I try to do. Now, in the course of this conversation, I unfortunately used the term old school, which <laughs> the, that particular editor just shut off his brain at that point. Hmm. What I was asking for was old school. It was outdated. It was, you know, it, it had no bearing on what he was being told was relevant and current, and I lost the argument right there. Actually, you know, it might have even been Sal that used the term old school. One of us used the term old school, and the conversation was was immediately over. Uh, that editor moved on. We had a, a series of editors on Spider-Girl during the time, and, and the, the last run we did of Spider-Girl, we've, we've uh, ended up with a, a, a couple of colorists that did just wonderful work. I was very happy with the stuff because, you know, there's to me, there's nothing wrong with a comic book looking like a comic book. I, I, I honestly enjoy bright colors and, uh, you know, daylight scenes <laughs> and, and things like that. You know, I, I, I'm not looking for my comics to be as depressing as the 6 o'clock news. No, no, absolutely not. In fact, I remember uh, not long ago, I, I started picking up uh, some of IDW's um, Donald Duck comics and Uncle Scrooge comics for my son, who's you know, about three years old, so too early to actually be reading it and understanding it, but still likes like the pictures. And it really sure. it blew me away. Just that I forgot that colors could be that bright. You know, like it, it was just it was very bright and colorful. And you're right, modern comics generally don't go that way. Like there's just something about the the palette they use is a little bit darker, more serene, more subdued. Whereas I'm reading these you know these other comics that are in some cases reprinting stuff from the '70s and you know in Europe, etc. But they're just they're so full of life and vibrancy. And there's really something to it. Like it's more attractive and appealing. You kind of want to read it more. I, that's how I've always felt about it. Now, I acknowledge that the comics we grew up on are kind of our programming. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, that the people who are reading comics now, the young people that are coming in and reading comics now, these are the comics they know. This is the comics. These are the comics they love. I'm not trying to tell them they're wrong to love those comics, but I love the comics I grew up on. The comics of the the, the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, that's that's the stuff that moved me and motivated me. It was, admittedly, it was melodrama. You know, people read Stan Lee and Roy Thomas dialogue from the early Avengers and are going, nobody talks like that. Nobody thinks anybody talks that way. But it's fun, man. It rolls off the tongue. It, it's it's really using the English language in a dramatic way. You know, I mean, every character is Shatner. If you you know, either you love Shatner or you don't. But I love Shatner. And Captain America was Shatner. You know, <laughs> so interesting. I, I, I there, there's no there's nothing wrong for me. Personally, there's nothing wrong with melodrama when it's done well. I mean, there's a lot of the Stanley Jack Kirby stuff. It's beautiful, beautiful comics. Most people will agree about that. But you can't have a live actor say some of the you know some of the dialogue that Stanley wrote and not sound cheesy, not sound corny. You know, Tom DeFalco, you know, deliberately does 
cheese at times because he feels the same way I do, that there's a heightened drama in comics that allows for that. And some readers like that. Other readers, oh, man, do they not like it. Oh, like, like viscerally do not like it. <laughs> like, like Tom and Ron have no right to be alive don't like it. Oh, you know, God. But it, it's... Uh, Oh, I've had, you know, I've been out on the internet. And there, there was one gentleman on a on a one message board that posited that uh, I did not deserve to have a career because I stole every line I ever drew from Sal Basama. And I only had two. I, I thought about posting. I thought about commenting, and the only two comments I could make were, "Well, Sal Basama really likes me," uh, and the other <laughs> one was, "What about all the lines I ripped off from Kirby? Come on, man." <laughs> <laughs> You're going to completely ignore everybody hating my Kirby ripoff? You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, everybody's, everybody's got an opinion, you know? Uh, and the internet is a great place for those to be, uh, to be traded. Absolutely. Uh, but, but yeah, you know, that's the thing. I don't take it too seriously when somebody hates my work any more than I take it too seriously if somebody really, really loves my work. I'm glad they're enjoying it. But I don't take that as a license to get a big head or anything because, you know, if, you're, if, if the people that are slamming you, you know, if you're going, okay, well, they're not really qualified to judge and, and they really shouldn't, uh, you know, apply a, a, a motive to it, you know, because when, when you have a reputation for being a hack, people assume you don't care about the work. I really care about the work. I really love the work I'm doing. I love comics. I'm just not doing the kind of comics you want to read. So, you know, we can agree to disagree. But but don't assume I don't care about what I'm doing. Don't assume that I'm just trying to collect a paycheck any more than Sal Basemo was only ever trying to collect a paycheck. Now, he's not going to deny he was trying to feed his family. But he enjoyed what he was doing, and he did it to the best of his ability. You know, a lot of us see this more as a craft than we do as an express, uh, an artistic expression of self. If you if you can understand the difference, you know, if I'm if I'm delineating the difference well enough. I mean, when I came into the industry, there was an objective standard of. Your, your purpose was to serve the story, to tell the story visually to the best of your ability, to the best clarity you could achieve, and not to just grind your own artistic acts and draw big figures on a page that didn't serve the function of telling the story as clearly as possible. And so, so in that way, it was a craft. It was like, you know, you can do a belt that's a beautiful piece of leather work and leather craft, and it's like very artistic and lovely. But if it doesn't hold up your pants, it's not a belt. You know, you can draw the hell out of a story, and you can put all kinds of wonderful pinups in it, and you can draw every pebble when the Hulk bursts through a wall, and you can draw every vein in his neck, and all this kind of But if you don't clearly tr- tell the story that the writer is trying to tell, you have failed as a storyteller. You have failed as a comic book. A comic book should tell a story visually. I mean, quite frankly... You know, a lot of what's being done, in, in my humble opinion, a lot of the stuff that's being done currently, they could be radio plays. There's a lot of standing around talking in a comic book. And, you know, in a visual medium, at least give them something interesting to do while they're having this conversation. You know, even in movies, what a, an example that comes that leaps to mind, because it was one of my favorite scenes in Age of Ultron, 
when Steve Rogers and Tony Stark are having this this really dynamic conversation about their points of view, they're chopping wood. <laughs> and it leads to that amazing scene where Steve just pulls that stump apart <laughs> to make his point physically and verbally. That's what comics should be. Give them something to do. Back in the classic comics, you know, the X-Men could be talking about how they feel about you know, mimic joining the team, but they were in the danger room dodging things and visual interesting things were going on while they were talking. That's one of the reasons why heroes and villains talk about their various philosophies while they're beating the crap out of each other because (laughs) you want something visual going on while they're having the conversation. Again, my personal opinion. It's, it's more dynamic, it's more engaging visually than two people sitting in a room and just coming up with interesting camera angles while two people are talking. You know, we used to call that a talking head sequence, and those were to be avoided like the plague when I was coming up. Now it feels like they're more often than not most of the story. I, I, that's what I, I've encountered that more these days, and, and I... I kind of lament it because I mean I, I would I would rather see them doing you know it doesn't have to be fighting uh, but I, I'd rather see them doing something interesting you know I'd, I'd rather see the, uh, the the illustrator being tasked with doing something visually interesting while they're having that conversation and not just you know I mean expressions are great and a really good illustrator can can tell a story with facial expressions, but uh, you know, I mean, it's it's. I don't think it's. I don't think it's using the medium of comics to its best advantage. Let me put it that way. Okay. Now I have another uh, listener question here. Now we've kind of delved into a little bit of this before. He basically he was curious about what were some of your recollections from the period when you unfortunately got removed from Amazing Spider-Man. Because uh, he just wanted some clarification on, uh, I guess, how it happened and also why, after uh, Owsley left, that you guys weren't brought back on. And I can't really address the why, after Owsley left, we weren't brought back on thing, other than other teams had been hired and you don't want to screw over more people to try to make something right. You know, that's that's not that's not right either. Um the, the one thing I will say from every version, you know, I, I do understand that, uh, that Jim Owsley, uh, Christopher Priest, Priest, how, however you think of the gentleman, uh, I know his version gets a lot of play. You know, he put it out there in his blog, and and I know a lot of people read that and, and go by it. Uh, you know, he, at one point he made the comment that, I was uh, very, very into Spider-Man to the point of obsession and that he was afraid that when he fired me, I might commit suicide. And, and I've seen people on message boards go, well, a friend's is real. Well, if he was into it that much and he's that crazy, he should have just killed himself. Jesus. Which is like really, really inappropriate, guys. But I wasn't that, you know, yes, I love Spider-Man. Yes, Working on the book was a dream come true, and yes, getting fired off the book, especially for no real reason other than a a, a disagreement for what the book should be, uh, sucked. It, it was not a good day, but I never contemplated suicide over it. Believe me. Um, 
and and what it really came down to, I mean, the one thing that he talks about that he maintains that is just not true was Tom DeFalco, whether he was traveling to England, which he didn't do until after that anyway. Um, he, he makes the point for Tom not being able to meet his schedule. And that just is not true. You know, DeFalco was never late on plots. You ask the guy, you know, the, the schedule kept changing on us. We kept meeting it, and they, he kept changing it on us. I don't know what his ultimate goal was. It's possible, and I don't know. I can't climb inside Jim Osley's head. But it's possible that his ultimate goal was to replace us because he referred to Amazing. Now, he was hired against all of Jim Shooter's usual rules for hiring an editor because Jim Shooter's rules for hiring an editor were you hire the guy who is most qualified and you step back and you let him run his books, okay? That was Jim's if uh, uh, standard operating procedure. Let's put it that way. In hiring Jim Ousley, he said at the time, yes, he knew that Jim was green and he knew that he was fresh, but he thought he, he had some faith in the kid and what could go wrong because the three Spider-Man books at that time were all written by former editors. Louise Jones was writing Web of Spider-Man, Al Milgram was writing Peter Parker Spider-Man, and Tom DeFalco was writing Amazing Spider-Man. So what could go wrong? This was a perfect learning experience for Jim Ousley. One of the first things Jim Ousley did was fire Louise Jones and Al Williamson. And he was really high on Peter David, which turned out to be a really great investment. And he had Dave Michelini on web, along with Mark Silvestri, and, and, and he wanted to go for a more you know dark and mysterious tone on Spider-Man. It, you know, it was the 80s. It, a lot of that was going on. He basically wanted Spider-Man to be more like what, Dare, what Miller was doing on Daredevil. Okay? And at one point, while I was in New York at, at a Spider-Man summit, he, he referred to he had all the books where he wanted them he had uh, Michelini doing the, you know, the dark mysterious Spider-Man with Silvestri he had Peter David doing the street level gritty stuff with Rich Buckler and, and he had the boring corporate Spider-Man in Amazing and we just sat there thank you uh, okay so obviously that's how he saw the book obviously that's not really how he saw the character uh, so you know I have to think that had something to do with how it played out because Tefelka was not laid on plots the fill-in started coming fast and furious and it wasn't because we weren't hitting our deadline at one point he pulled the two-part Fire Lord out of rotation that book was penciled completed and he pulled it out and ran fill-ins because I was told he was considering doing it as an annual or a graphic novel and I was livid because he's running fill-ins in the meantime. And so it was a mess. It was a complete mess. But DeFalco, when DeFalco was fired, he had a plot completed for the gang war stuff. That it was, it was like six months away. Okay, And he decided to eat that plot. He wasn't going to turn it in. He wasn't going to get paid for it. He was just going to keep it and trash it and if he's fired he's fired 
Ousley ended up writing that book, and Ousley got fired like six or seven months later because that issue, which Tom had plotted six or eight months in advance, that issue shipped late. Huh. So there was there was a lot more going on than what Ousley talks about in his blog, and and I can't. You know, I mean, it's been 30 years now. I, I don't remember specifics, uh, but I do remember that I fought to stay on Spider-Man. He, if he gave me a deadline, I met it because I didn't want to get fired off of Spider-Man. That was my dream job. So I, you know, I was hustling my ass off, and so was DeFalco. And, and, and it just, it wasn't enough. I mean, I'll, what I know for a fact is when we got fired, Virginia Ramita came into Tom DeFalco's office and said, Tom, what the hell is going on 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 the Spider-Man books? And Tom said, what are you talking about? He goes, you got fired because you were late? And he says, well, that's what he's saying. And he goes, you were the most on time of every book in the house. <laughs> I use you as an example to, to beat on other creative teams. Now, that's a fact. That's what Virginia Ramita said to Tom DeFalco after it happened. So, wow. it is what it is. Well, let's move on to happier things then. Please. Um, actually, well, let's talk about you and, uh, and the legendary Tom DeFalco. Where did that, that partnership really start, and how did you guys first meet and work together? It's been a long and uh, fruitful partnership, obviously. It's lasted yeah. a long time. It, it is. It, it has been. It's been uh, very formative to my entire career. Um, it was... The, the most advantageous thing I, I you know to find somebody that you're that simpatico with that you enjoy working with that much um, is, is a very rare thing and, and I was very very fortunate he hired me on Marvel Team Up uh, he was the editor of the Spider-Man books at the time and Team Up was one of them uh, Spider-Man had guest starred in Kesar and you know, you're all you're always kind of hoping if you get a chance to do Spider-Man, maybe somebody will like it and call you about a Spider-Man book. So they called me about doing Team Up, and you know, he called me up and asked me if I was interested, and he introduced himself by saying, you know, I don't know what it's been like working for Louise and for Danny Fingeroth, but uh, Louise Jones, uh, uh, Simonson, um, but he said, uh, you know, I I'm pretty involved as an editor, and I can be a pain in the ass. Uh, so, you know, I want you to be prepared. And I said, Tom, I, feedback is not something I'm afraid of. I, I'm learning. I, I want to learn. Um, unfortunately, you know, when you when you get hired professionally, back in the 80s when you got hired professionally, they hired you because they felt you could do the job and you kind of got thrown in and here's your deadline. Go. And I, I had to solicit um, opinions from Louise. It, it, you know, each, as each job would come in, I would make a specific, you know, plea to Louise for feedback. Uh, that wasn't really her style, and she said, "No, everything looked great. That, that was wonderful." You know, and, and I, I wasn't getting specifics with with Tom. I was kind of looking forward to that, you know, that kind of back and forth with the editor, and and I wanted to learn. And Tom is very much a natural teacher, so initially that was something that really clicked with us uh, as editor penciler. The, the funniest thing about that, it was it was shortly after he hired me 
that he was moving on to other things. He, he, uh, he was giving up the Spider-Man titles, which ended up being the situation where he ended up writing Spider-Man. But Danny Fingeroth was taking over the titles. And, and a job that I had done as an inventory for, for Team Up that, that uh, guest starred Wonder Man had a sequence in it where, you know, uh, Tom, he loved something you had mentioned earlier with multiple images to show Spider-Man moving and dodging and all this kind of stuff. Uh, he loved those kind of things. And there was a sequence in the story where Spider-Man's in this test chamber where all these different things are, you know, popping out of the walls and shooting at him and he's dodging. And, and, and he just wanted like a big three-quarter splash page with multiple images of Spider-Man jumping around, right? And by the time the story was ready to go to print, Danny Fingeroth was the editor and he asked me to redraw that sequence with a series of smaller shots of Spider-Man dodging the individual things. Huh. It's, you know, you pay your money, you take your, you, you, you take your chances, you know. I mean, a different editor, it, it's very subjective. You know, they one guy likes it one way, another guy likes it another way. Who's signing the checks? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Tom always saw himself such a hard-ass editor and everything. And I remember having a conversation with him on the phone when he was we were doing the transition I said you know well Danny asked me to redraw that sequence and he went he what I said yeah he, he didn't like the big shot with all the multiple images he wanted individual shots of Spider-Man dodging and he went huh okay you know and it was just one of those kind of uh, one of those moments where you realize different editors different strokes for different folks you know that kind of thing uh, but then Tom and I became partners uh, we both got hired by Danny to work on Spider-Man initially I, I've told this story before I was hired to do six issues while John Romita Jr. went off and took a break from Spider-Man to start on X-Men and then he was going to come back and do Amazing Spider-Man and X-Men monthly um, so I was initially hired to do six issues those six issues happened to be the introduction of the black costume and all this stuff which was not planned uh you know, it was timed for uh, Secret Wars and nothing else, and you know, basically that 252 ended up being done by a fill-in. It was it was plotted by Roger Stern, scripted by Tom DeFalco, penciled by a fill-in guy, me, and inked by a fill-in guy, Brett Breeding. <laughs> um, and it, you know, nobody knew it was going to be a big deal. In fact, at the time, we thought it might be a disaster. I mean, uh, at one point, Jim Shooter said, "Bring it in in 252, get rid of it in 253," but the argument was made that Spider-Man should hang on to it until it's introduced in Secret Wars, which wasn't until like Secret Wars 7 or 8, so we had to keep it around at least for like 6 or 7 months and he goes, okay, fine that makes sense, but as soon as it's introduced in Secret Wars, get rid of it because it's going to be a dog, but then within those 6 or 7 months, we started getting mail on it and everybody loved it and everybody was shocked and surprised and gratified that it was a big hit and blah 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 uh, but Tom and I solidified our partnership on Spider-Man. We've had long conversations, long phone conversations about Peter Parker, uh, who he was, why he was the way he was, uh, all the supporting characters, how they felt about Pete, how Pete felt about them. We would have these wonderful, wonderful conversations. And uh, and, and through that, stories would emerge and, and subplots would emerge. And, and uh, it was just a, a really wonderful, creative time that, you know, kind of forged us into this 
kind of simpatico team. In the meantime, there was between team up and working together on Spider Man, we met in person at a, at a, a convention in Pittsburgh. Uh, along with Butch Geis, Jackson Geis. Uh, he was working on Micronauts at the time, and the three of us went out to dinner. And in that dinner, we found out that, you know, Tom and I really, really loved all the same kind of comics. You know, I mean, we kind of grew up on the same kind of stuff, loved the, you know, the Stan Lee Marvel vibe, and, uh, you know, really enjoyed that kind of stuff. So, you know, our Spider-Man was a, was a love letter to that, and our Spider-Man was, you know, us trying our best to emulate that and uh you know in our thor and, and and we just enjoy working together it's why we find ourselves working together because we try to make it happen as often as possible you know? when you guys were working on amazing spider-man together you've said previously that uh tom was really focused on, on generating new characters and new villains uh yeah. were there any kind of classic spider-man villains that you feel like you never really had a good chance to to do i mean obviously with spider-girl as well you've had a lot of you know older characters come back there as well, but are there any characters that you kind of missed out on being able to illustrate in a yes. in a comic that oh, you yeah. missed? Yeah, yeah, there were a lot. I mean, I wanted to do all the classic villains. I I would have loved. I did the Vulture for Marvel Universe Handbook, and that was it. Uh, I would have loved to have done the Vulture when we did the the Spider Man Annual in was after we were off the book it was like 96 or something like that i think for some reason i, I don't know it was the, the we did a story that cataloged the exact moment when george stacy realized peter parker was spider-man yes i remember that one I, yeah was, I, I, mean, I got a chance to be inked by john ramita senior which was just amazing and uh all of it was just it was a joy to work on but when we did that story uh you know that was tom kind of saying uh, do we have any ideas? We came up with the idea of cataloging that precise moment, and that put us in a in a an era where you know he goes, well, "Are there any villains you've always wanted to do?" I said, "Craven Honor, Craven Honor," and he went, "Okay." So that's you know it worked out because at that period Craven was having dealings with Norman Osborn and blah blah blah. So uh, I got to do Craven the Hunter in that annual, which was. One of the characters I would have loved to have done. I, we kind of created Puma uh, as a as a, a, a new take on that type of a noble villain, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, and, and I love the Puma. But uh, you know, I, I finally got to do Craven. I would have loved to have done the Lizard. Uh, I, I we finally did a Mr. and Mrs. Spider Man. You know, where Tom was saying, you know, are there any characters you still want? I Lizard. You know, that, so when he would ask me about it, I could always give him a character I would love to take a shot at. You know, I'd love to get a chance to, to handle. So, yeah, all those classic characters. Now, uh, the, of the characters you did create with Tom, who was your kind of your favorites? Uh, I'm speaking specifically of Amazing Spider-Man because there's obviously a, a bunch of cool new characters that you guys put together. Who was the one that kind of stood out for you the most that you really had a personal affection for? Uh, Puma was one uh, because he went through two different costumes. Uh, partly that was because the first costume ended up, uh, you know, the, we, we got bars crossed as far as the coloring on the costume and, and it became kind of confusing what was part of the costume and what was part of Puma. And I, you know, so I, I ended up redesigning his costume to make it more obvious what was costume and what was his fur, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so Puma was a, a favorite. Silver Sable is a standout. I, I to this day, 
I would love to to do a Silver Sable miniseries with DeFalco and really get back to what the original uh, thrust of that character was. You know, uh, we got to do a two part. Uh, when we were offered the chance to do a two-part, what was that called? Web Spinners, that series that ran for a while with Spider-Man, yeah. uh, where we could you could do stories from different eras, you know. And, and the editor asked us to do, and I think it was Ralph Macchio at the time asked us to do a two-parter uh, to wrap up the series. And it was, you know, kind of a given that if if we were going to do one, it had to be from the era where he was wearing the black costume, and and, and you know that otherwise we could do whatever we wanted and. We wanted to do Silver Sable. We wanted to take, you know, to kind of uh, do our, our take on, on a character we had created. But you know, because once you got the once you got our own book, obviously we were working on other stuff at the time. And Greg Wright and Stephen Butler and the other artists that worked on that book did a did a terrific job. It's got a fans to this day that love that run of, of stories. But uh, you know, I, I, that's still a character that I would love to do. You know. Kind of get back to the basics with her and uh, and, and do a mini series or something, but uh, you know I'm not the one who makes those kind of decisions. But uh, I mean, when they talked about Sony wanting to do spin-off movies of Spider-Man and trying to use some of his secondary characters, and Silver Sable was on a list, it's like, wow, somebody wants to make a Silver Sable movie. Go ahead, that would be cool. <laughs> well, there's a lot there. I mean, it's a great character. Yeah, I, I thought so. I mean, there was so much just in Tom's Bible. For that character, some of which Greg used, other stuff he created himself. You know, a lot of what, what Greg did with the book over 24, 25 issues was, you know, I was all Greg. I'm not trying to take anything away from Greg, but there was a lot just in Tom's original Bible for the character that, uh, that, that you know, when Tom creates a character, he creates a character with legs. He tries to come up with aspects and a background on the character that will feed story ideas and such uh, and uh, you know he definitely did that with Silver Sable and Puma and uh, Black Fox and you know uh, you know, these are all characters that it was very gratifying to see that the, the other writers that came in on Spider-Man had some affection for the characters too and used them well and uh, some of the stuff that Mattis did with, uh, with Puma was really cool it was always great seeing Sal draw the Puma as well and uh and Michelini seemed to enjoy the Black Fox and, and Silver Sable, and, and uh, you know, so yeah, it, it's it's very gratifying when these characters do catch on. Now, Silver Sable has appeared in almost every animated version of Spider-Man that's been done since the '80s. Silver Sable has turned up in one form or another, so kind of cool. Absolutely. A question about um, w- during your guys' run, you had the uh, the Sinister Syndicate first form. Uh, would that was that you know kind of an idea that you and Tom had talked t- together about kind of putting some of his villains together in a team, or how did that come come about, and what was that like drawing them all together? Uh, it was fun. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I uh, that was kind of Tom's thing. You know, he he uh, he liked certain dynamics that worked because um, he even did something similar in um, in Spider Girl. He kind of did a pastiche of that Spider-Man annual with the Sinister Six and stuff, and uh, and he always liked bad guys who were criminals, who knew they were criminals, who were using their powers to uh, only enhance the, their bank accounts, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so so he put together a nice team of guys 
who were looking to get paid. You know, they were a mercenary band, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I, uh, I I always liked Sandman as a character. I always liked what Tom did with him, uh, as far as having him go straight. I was sorry when they reversed all of that. Yeah, me uh-huh. too. Uh, so, because I, I, you know, I, I like the idea of these characters evolving and, and such, but, um, uh, yeah, and, and at one point, uh, I think it was even Jim Owsley that wanted, uh, the, the, the Rhino redesigned and, uh, and he wanted it to be more mechanical and I, I didn't really see that as, as working. So what I did was I, I kind of, you know, okay, what's left on the Rhino that isn't part of the original costume and it's kind of like that plating that's under the skin and I so I came up with something that, that more played up the plating on uh, on the rhino and and made him look a little heavier and uh, you know it, it wasn't it wasn't a bad redesign it was okay I mean I, I'm not sure the rhino needed redesigned just kind of you know play with his body weight and that's really all it kind of needed to happen with that character but uh, but it, it worked and uh, yeah the beetle and uh, you know it, it, it was there's some neat characters I, I liked speed demon and uh, boomerang and uh, you know those those characters all all worked well and that story with Coney Island was a lot of fun I mean uh, that was kind of when things were starting to get a little weird on the spider-man books but um, it, it was a it was a fun story I mean when you look at that now, and compare it to the kind of stories we're, we're doing these days in the comics. I mean, there were the smaller panels, something was happening in every panel. You know, you got what, five or six villains versus Spider-Man and Silver Sable at Coney Island. It was just action, action, action. It was a lot of fun. Now, um, uh, one thing I, I, I remember reading, and I never had a chance to talk to you about this last time, you worked on a, a Hercules miniseries in the 90s. Uh, with Tom and then Pat Olaf actually doing the inks over you. What was that uh, like working on, on that? It was kind of an interesting time to be working on a character like Hercules. It, it was, a, yeah, it was, there, there was talk about, even, even at that point, which was years before it actually happened, there was talk about giving Hercules his own series. And Tom was asked to do a, a pitch for it. Um, but then it was decided it would be a mini to test it out and to test the waters and such. And it, it was a very weird time at Marvel. Uh, Bob Harris was editor in chief, and uh, there was a you know trying new things was very problematic because uh, the sales were iffy at the time and everything. Um, and initially, Bob Harris did not want to hire us because we had done Thor, and he knew exactly what we would do with Hercules. So we were hired anyway. I believe it was Tom Brevoort was the editor on that project. I believe and so, he, yeah. He hired us anyway and, you know, and said, take it as a challenge. So we came up with the idea of having him work with S.H.I.E.L.D. because it was during the Heroes, uh, all the heroes had disappeared as part of the Heroes Reborn thing. Uh, so the Marvel Universe was in, in disarray. So we had S.H.I.E.L.D. coming in and trying to maximize the superheroes that were left and, and contacting Hercules. I mean, we had a lot of fun with it and it was a lot of fun working with, um, with Pat Olive on that. We were sharing studio space at the time. And, and I, I, I am second to none as a fan of Pat Olive as an illustrator and as a person. Uh, so it was a lot of fun working with him on that. Um, and he just did beautiful, beautiful work on it, but and it also helped us 
create a kind of a different vibe. I mean, obviously, what what Harris was afraid we were going to do was just, you know, an old Lee Kirby pastiche like we did on Thor. So we decided to go completely a different direction. And and I kind of, you know, I was looking at I was enjoying Hellboy a lot at the time. So I kind of put on a bit of a Mike Mignola hat graphically and and with Pat inking me, it was taking it in a different direction. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was very experimental for me in a lot of ways. And and uh, I thought it ended up looking pretty cool. And I thought it was a really solid story. Unfortunately, it, like many things do, it kind of fell between the cracks. I, I've never read a review of it. I've never seen anybody talk about it. You're the first person that's ever asked me about it. Uh, the one sequence that's in there, though, that was interesting when I saw the, event, the original Avengers trailer and they showed the helicarrier coming up out of the water. Because when I was a kid, and I, I remember reading Captain America stories with the helicarrier and such, and it's like, how do they land it? Where do they land that thing? It's got that big thing hanging down at the bottom. I mean, where the hell do they land this thing? And then I, re- oh, it's an aircraft carrier. They landed in the water. So we, I wanted to do this sequence as part of you know dealing with Shield. I said, Tom, can we do this? I want to do, you know, they show up on this giant aircraft carrier, and then you see the the big fans deploy and and it lifts up out of the water and there's these battleships around it you know and the the, the sirens are going off and the thing pulls out of the water and it's raining down on everybody and all this kind of stuff and he liked that idea so we we did it and so when i saw it in the avengers i'm going did somebody actually read that three issue Hercules miniseries (laughs) And and then i found out oh they did something very similar in the ultimate avengers and I said, well, okay, we still did it first, but I'm sure that's where they saw it. They saw it in Ultimate Avengers. They probably didn't see it in the Hercules miniseries. But uh, but that was something that, that I always kind of wanted to do that I got to – I finally got to put that to rest. But, I, yeah, I thought it was a fun story. It was, it was also Hercules coming to terms. He was going through some stuff at the time coming out of Heroes for Hire, and we wanted to get him back to his kind of – enjoying life attitude you know uh so there was an arc for hercules and and we kind of left it open that he might work with shield again and, and uh it was fun it was a lot of fun i want to go back way back for a minute um when when you got i guess the gig working on uh, doing the uh the backup story that was um the kid who collected spider-man was that did you th- view it as a tryout of sorts for being able to maybe get a regular amazing gig or is it just kind of the luck of the draw and you finally got the draw amazing spider-man and that's it, all that mattered it was very much the luck of the draw because that was during the transition between tom defalco and danny Fingeroth. and tom defalco had intended for john rita jr to do the lead uh, which was you know wrapping up the fight with Thunderball from the issue before, and he was going to give me the kid who collects Spider-Man. But as he was passing off to Danny, he called me and he said, "Listen, I don't know what Danny's going to do. Uh, there was some talk that Danny might have you finish up the Thunderball story and have John Romita Jr. do uh, do the kid who collects Spider-Man." I said, "So I don't know what Danny's going to do. So you know, I just want you to know that what I my intentions aren't what's going to." you know, rule the day here. And I said, I understand. So it it took a little longer for Danny to make his call, but when he did make the call, he decided to just do what Tom was going to do. And he sent me the plot at the time. No, I was not considering it a tryout for Spider-Man. It was an opportunity for uh, a crazy Spider-Man fan to do a really, really cool Spider-Man story that got to recap his origin and stuff. And Roger, 
is a terrific writer. There's, I don't think anybody would argue that point. And, uh, you know, uh, I respect him greatly, and, and I thought the story was fantastic. I, I've said before, I, my job was kind of to stay out of the way and try to serve it as best. It, it didn't have a lot of action in it, so I wanted a Spider-Man that would say Spider-Man just standing there, which is, you know, certainly my, my intention anytime I was going to get to do Spider-Man was going to, you know, with all due respect to Mr. Uh, Ramita, was to, you know, do some do some Ditko. Uh, but I thought it was a, uh, particularly appropriate in this story because since Spider-Man wasn't going to be, you know, swinging around town and jumping through windows and things, I thought you had to, Spider-Man had to be unique and Spider-Man just standing there talking to Tim. So I thought this would be this is going to be a good time to, to really pull out my Ditko and even not a, not just Ditko early Ditko and let Spider Man be Spider Man. So that's what I did. Uh, interestingly enough, pre McFarlane, uh, a couple of times I like reversed the webbing like Ditko would do occasionally and, and all this kind of jazz and and you know I had the thinner neck and the bigger eyes and and the, the you know the more complicated you know, the webbing kind of reversing at times and stuff and. Uh, I, Danny Fingeroth was very uncomfortable with it. Oh, really? Yeah, he, he contemplated having Ramita fix some of that. Huh. Uh, and then chose not to. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, Terry Austin inked that and did a, did a wonderful, wonderful job with it. And, uh, to, you know, to this day, it's one of the pieces that I, I, I can still look at very and be very proud of. And, uh, and certainly the emotional impact of the story was not lost on me. And, uh, you know, I, I'm very proud and happy to have been a part of it and to not have screwed up Roger's story. <laughs> and, uh, and, and to kind of have that, you know... Uh, as part of Spider-Man's legacy, you know, it's 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 very gratifying that it's been uh, accepted the way it has. Well, it's interesting. So, it's, it's, I did not at the time. I wasn't treating it like it was an audition. Uh, in some ways, it may have been. Uh, you know, certainly, it, I was in the office. Danny knew me from working on Kesar and Star Wars uh, out of Louise's office. He was Louise's assistant when I was originally hired by Marvel. Uh, so Danny and I had a history, and uh, it was very, you know, uh, it was wonderful of him to keep me in mind and to keep me busy. Uh, and, you know, the fact that he was on the Spider-Man books, I, it opened that door for me, uh, which may or may not have been there otherwise. Uh, you, you mentioned Star Wars. What was it like working on Star Wars for Marvel? It, it was odd and a lot of fun. I, uh Mary Jo Duffy is is a terrific writer and a, a really terrific person. I enjoyed her company a lot, and I enjoyed my phone conversations with her a lot. Uh, and and I liked the fact that she saw the you know since we were coming up with stories that you know we couldn't have major events happen and such. Of course, with the nature of the beast, that, that she she enjoyed having fun with the characters and getting to know the characters more and see them in situations that you wouldn't in the big epic space movies and such. So I enjoyed that aspect of the book a lot. Um, you know, kind of the comedy aspects of it. Um, it. It was weird, though, because, you know, you would be told, well, you can't do that, but they wouldn't tell you why. <laughs> you know, uh, we did a, a, a story with the Lasbys 
on this uh, the little furry guys and originally in the pencils they don't look like kitty cats but be- because we didn't know about the Ewoks okay created these little Lasbies that kind of looked like you know little teddy bears little cartoony guys with big big round eyes uh, kind of like the paintings you know the, the, the creepy paintings and uh, and I designed them that way and Tom Palmer had to fix it in the Yanks and make them look more like kitty cats because somebody at Lucasfilm went yeah, you can't do that but he wouldn't but they wouldn't tell us why you know uh, and of course in the story that we introduced the Lasbies we also had them on hang gliders and all this stuff so you know they were kind of freaking out a little bit about that and I, I believe I heard the story that Dave Michelini, one of the stories he wanted to do was have the Empire build a second Death Star, and they went, no. And so Michelini went, well, I guess they're doing that in the next movie. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, so it was, it was strange that way. So we really kind of did go our own way with it and, and, and you know, just try to keep it engaging from month to month and, and do some, you know, I, I, the last few we did with... Uh, that started to tie into Return of the Jedi. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I actually got to work on the Return of the Jedi adaptation uh, because Al Williamson was overscheduled, I guess, because he, I, I penciled the last 10 pages of it. I believe it was like 10 pages. I could be wrong about that, but it was five to 10 pages that actually had to be penciled. A lot of other guys came in over his layouts uh, for the pages before mine, but the, the last series of pages I actually penciled, and, and pages were inked by guys like Dan Green and Bill Sienkiewicz and uh, uh, Tom Palmer did the, did the lion's share of them, I believe. But uh, so I was given photo reference, you know, these, these black and white photos with big scratches across them that were taken on the set as they were filming Return of the Jedi, so I could uh, so I could do these scenes, and it was uh, it was scripted by Archie Goodwin, and he did little thumbnail layouts of. You know which picture to plug in and how to handle stuff and everything. You know. So that was it was a lot of fun, kind of you know getting a behind the scenes look and getting some uh, preview of uh, Return of the Jedi. We all uh, Archie and Mary Jo and I were invited to the Denver premiere of Return of the Jedi, and the mayor of Denver was there. And oh wow! We rented tuxedos, and Joe was wearing a beautiful gown, and and we were hosted by a guy who showed up in jeans and sandals. <laughs> It was good. It was it was interesting. It was the first time I ever traveled on a plane was for Marvel early on uh, to to fly to Denver uh, and uh, be a part of that. So it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I you know I, I really enjoyed. It was the one time too that we, we did an issue uh, that I did ten pages in a day. Now there were breakdowns. And Luke Skywalker was on wreckage out in the middle of the o- an ocean planet with just puffy white clouds as backgrounds. But I did uh, ten pages of breakdowns in a day for a, for an issue of Star Wars. It, was, it might have been my last issue. Wow! And I, and I might have already started on you know like team up or something like that. I, I don't really remember. But uh, but I remember I was pressed on the deadline and and uh, in that and I'm told that's kind of like the Kirby barrier. But I'm sure Jack was doing like full pencils and crazy machinery and everything. Absolutely. And the only way I was able to do it was light backgrounds and and, and breakdowns. You know. Um, I want to ask. Uh, so at this time, when you were doing like Star Wars, you were still working at the animation studio at the same time, right? Yes, I worked at the animation studio until I was hired to do Spider Man. 
So how did you kind of manage to balance, you know, starting to really get into the comic book illustrating and then also having kind of a quote-unquote day job at an animation studio at the same time? Like, how were you able to kind of manage both? With great difficulty. Uh, actually, the, 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 the best thing that happened in that situation was if we were not really busy on a deadline at the animation studio, the gentleman that ran the studio didn't mind if I was working on my comic stuff at the studio. Okay. Uh, there were times, though, when we were busy at the studio and I knew I had to go home and do pages of Team Up or Star Wars or whatever. And it did start to get a little rough around the edges. You know, there were, there was one time in particular that I felt like I was burning the candle at both ends a little too much and uh, was, was kind of feeling the edges crinkle a bit, if you know what I mean. Uh, so it was definitely a choice that had to be made. And when I was, when I was hired, when they, when they was hired to do Spider-Man, uh, I decided, you know, and this is about as stable as comics is going to get for me. So I, I so told the gentleman at the studio that I'd be moving on at the animation studio that I'd be moving on. And he understood. Um, and then I got this phone call from Tom DeFalco because at that point he had already kind of become a mentor to me and a, a friend. And he said, you know, Ron, it's none of my business. And you can tell me I'm crazy and you can tell me to shut up and mind my own business. But, you know, I really do feel like you, uh, you need to pick one or the other. And if it's animation, that's our loss. But, you know, I, I don't think you're going to fully meet, the, meet your potential in comics or in animation if you're dividing between the two. And um, and I said, Tom, I, I really appreciate you saying this, and, uh, and and I've already made that decision. And he goes, Really? I said, Yeah. I mean, I appreciate your everything you've said has kind of helped me, you know, made me feel more comfortable with it. But I I've, I've decided to take Spider Man and, and quit the animation studio. And he goes, Oh, well, don't I feel like an ass? <laughs> and I, I said, Tom, please don't feel that way. Because it, it has really helped confirm that I've made the right choice, and, and you know, you having faith in me means a lot, and uh, I appreciate that. So, you know, it, at that point, we didn't even. I, I think we knew Tom was was going to write it too, because I, I I said, you know, I hope you don't mind if I decide to pick comics and work on your book with you, and he went, oh, okay, well, hey, that's great, you know. So, uh, so yeah, but yeah, up until that point, I was. Anything I did before Spider-Man, which was a couple of Indiana Jones fill-ins, uh, a King Conan, my entire run on Kesar and Star Wars, was all while still working at the animation studio. Yes. So I'll, I'll wrap us up with a, a final kind of question about what was it like working on Kesar? It's your first kind of major project in comics. What was it like to be working on that character? And then also, was it your idea to sneak Spider-Man into your fourth issue? Uh, that was uh, Bruce Jones was running the show on that one, uh, and I think they were asking him to you know kind of mix things up a little bit. And uh, it, it was interesting. Like I said, it was a little like being thrown in on the deep end. Uh, it wasn't my Kesar. I, I like again, <laughs> again, I might be the only one, but I loved the original take on Kesar. You know those John Buscema stories from Savage Tales and, and, and everything. I uh, I loved that character. Uh, I love the proud savage. I love the fact that he knew what it was like in civilization. He chose to live in the savage land, you know, that kind of thing. So the, 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 the new take on him is kind of the, the lost boy and, he, you know, and some people called it Kesar the middle-aged accountant or something, you know. But, 
So I, I was always at one point we did a flashback. Um, Shauna told Peter Parker how she and Kesar met, and of course they originally met in a John Buscema story in Savage Tales, a uh, black and white story. But um, you know, he, he, Bruce Jones created this thing where they met, and he was still uh, the the me Tarzan, you Jane Kesar, and at one point he slaps her and. Peter goes, he, he hit you? And she said, yeah, all gorillas hit their mates. And I'm like, but he's not an ape man. <laughs> he's, he's, he's a feral child. He was raised by Sabu, but he's, he's not Tarzan. And, and it would make me crazy. And Louise would go, Ron, nobody cares. Nobody liked that version of Kesar. We're doing something new with him. And I'm like, okay. Um, but I, yeah, I felt like the the odd man out because I, I really loved the. I wanted to explain. I wanted to do a story where, you know, Kesar's pride was all torn down and his arrogance was torn away, and and he was shattered by something terrible that turned him into what he was in the Bruce Jones version, you know. And, and I, I could not interest anybody in pursuing that line because the old Kesar was dead. This was. This book had caught on with with readers and direct sales, and and was doing great. So there was no interest in in uh, reminding anybody of the original KSR, you know. And I mean, at one point in one of my first issues, there was a scene where he where Shanna is killed. It ends up being all reversed through time stuff and everything. But but Shanna's killed, and he goes savage. And in my liner notes, I had him going. Stronger than the Mastodon, stronger than the giant boar, mighty as Kesar, Lord of the Jungle. That was his thing, you know. And I had him saying it while he was killing this beast that, that killed Shauna. And they didn't use it. They didn't care. They they just, you know, I, I get it. You know, when a when a character is perceived as having not been a success in one version, and he's now a success in this version. There's no real interest. There's no real interest in fan service for the old version because, you know, Louise was right in her way. You know, who cares? Uh, this is the version that, that has, has caught, has caught on. And uh, but I was the lone voice crying in the wilderness because I loved the old Kesar. <laughs> but uh, it, it was always a character I would have loved to have revisited. You know, I've never had the opportunity. To revisit the character, um, has anyone ever requested um, a commission of Kazar? I mean, early on, yes. I mean, but that was when I was still doing the book. I, I did a couple of commissions. I'm trying to think if I've done any. I, I don't think I've done any recently. None come to mind. So I'm going to say I'm going to go on a lot on a limb and say no. Because uh, I, you know, I don't even get requests. I get requests for things I don't understand. Like Thanos, but uh, but uh, I, I think people think I'm Ron Lim or something. But, uh, but well, the, I, no, the first I, name's the same. What's that? I said the yeah. first name's the same. Yeah, exactly. All, we're all the same. Ron Wilson, Ron Lim, Ron Friends. We're all the same. Ron. But, <laughs> uh, so I, I get asked about. You know, I get asked Thanos. I do. A, I get asked about Venom, even though I never really did Venom. Uh, I you know I did the black suit, but not Venom. And uh, but I, but I don't get asked to do Kesar or Shauna or I, I still occasionally get asked to do Star Wars characters, which is kind of cool. And I have been asked a few times at conventions to do an Indiana Jones from just from those two issues that I did, you know. So that's kind of fun. But uh, yeah, if anybody's out there wants a commission of K 
Kesar, or Shana, contact Catskill Comics. I'll be happy to do one. And uh, we should say that. So any any commissions, you, you do take them through Catskill Comics, right? That's correct. Yeah, CatskillComics.com. Mr. Scott Kress, an incredible professional and a terrific guy and uh, a brother. So, uh, yes. Excellent. Well, Ron, thank you so much for joining us and talking about your career today. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you on in 100 episodes again. <laughs> I, I will look forward to it. I'm going to count the days, Adam. Okay, good. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, thank you for the incredible compliment of asking me to be back on. I, I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself, sir.